Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffBeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Monday, so this is an archive show. First published as a newspaper column sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy the show. This story was first published on October 21st of 2018 under the headline, Stubborn Citizen Teamed Up with Governor McCall on Bottle Bill. Here we go. Longtime Oregonians may remember a time in the mid-1970s when the Welcome to Oregon signs at the state's southern border were superfluous. One could tell the difference between Oregon and California by the amount of litter on the side of the road. The difference had mostly vanished by the mid-1980s. By then, California litter levels had dropped to match. But during the time it existed, the phenomenon was, according to those old enough to remember it, stark and startling. Social scientists never studied this, of course, but its most likely explanation will be found in Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein's book, Nudge. In it, Thaler and Sunstein point out that when an authority wants to encourage different behavior, it can change the choice architecture so that, although people still have just as many choices as before, the quote-unquote right choice is easier to make, or more obviously better, or fits in with established habits. Their example is making organ donation an opt-out rather than an opt-in choice when people apply for driver's licenses. It's still your choice, but if you don't much care one way or the other, you're a donor rather than a non-donor. Most likely, Oregonians in 1977 littered less than Californians because they'd been nudged, and Californians had not yet. The default behavior for the average Oregonian was to stick that empty beer or pop can into the back seat to dispose of later. The default for the average Californian was to toss it out a window just as it had been for the average Oregonian before the nudge. And with the habit of hanging on to pop cans came the habit of hanging on to other litter as well, reinforced by the same public service advertising campaigns that had been largely ineffective before that nudge came. This nudge had been delivered in 1971, when the Oregon State Legislature overcame the ferocious resistance of the beverage and beverage container industries and passed the nation's first bottle deposit law. The law was virtually bulldozed into the legislature by a laconic square-jawed logging equipment salesman named Richard Chambers, and despite the resistance, its supporters managed to keep it alive long enough to be noticed and adopted by legendary Oregon Governor Tom McCall. Chambers and McCall made a good team. No multi-billion dollar industry stood a chance against those two. Richard Chambers was a near-perfect example of a classic sort of mid-century Oregon man. Independent, stoic, unostentatious, and utterly unimpressed with things like prestige and status. He grew up in Salem, then dropped out of college after one year to join the Navy. That didn't last long. One day an officer dressed him down for some silly violation, and Chambers cold-cocked him with one punch. The Navy decided it was better off without him, so he went into the Merchant Marine Service. By the mid-1960s, he was back in Salem, working as a salesman for a logging equipment company and diving into the wilderness with his family. He was married by now with three kids, every chance he could. Always he would come back from these hiking and kayaking adventures with bags and bags of garbage that he'd picked up along the trails. Quote, Litter drove him wild, his daughter, Victoria Berger, told writer Brent Wolf. He'd come home with these bags and wave them and say, Why do people have to do this? 
Then one day, while staying at the family's beach cabin in Pacific City and just back from his customary early morning walk on Nestucca Spit, Chambers opened a newspaper and learned that activists in British Columbia were pushing a law that would ban non-returnable bottles and cans. He immediately bounded to the telephone and called State Representative Paul Hanneman, who happened to be a friend of his. Hanneman promised to introduce a bill in the next legislative session. That would be 1969. Chambers didn't wait. He knew the bill would have plenty of competition for House members' attention. Nearly 2,000 were introduced, as it turned out, and he also knew that most legislators' first response to his bill would be to think it trivial. So he got busy coordinating and financing a sort of grassroots campaign of one. First, he educated himself by requesting information from the bottlers and manufacturers, who would, he knew, be his main opponents, and who would never talk to him once they learned he was up to. Once he had all the information he needed, he launched his campaign. Letters from rich chambers typed on different colored paper and different typewriters and stamped with odd combinations of postage and always hand-addressed poured forth. The bill did not survive its baptism of fire, but it came close enough to leave the industrial concerns badly rattled. Indeed, it might have worked, but when Hahnemann reached out at the 11th hour to Tom McCall to ask for support, McCall responded by squashing it with a letter sent to all parties that simply said he wanted no bottle legislation in the current session. Boom, the bill was dead. But Hanneman did not at first realize why McCall did it. McCall knew that if he threw his support behind the bill now, it might not fly. Its momentum was all downward. Lawmakers would have to weasel out of freshly made promises to constituents and contributors. It was far from a sure thing. And if it died now, it would be very hard to revive. So with an eye on 1971, McCall coyly threw the project into the freezer and set about convincing the opposition that it was actually dead. He seems to have been pretty successful in this. When, two years later, it roared back to life with McCall's name blazoned all over it, it took the opposition very much by surprise. This would be a signature piece of legislation for him, a follow-up to his success with 1967's Beach Bill. The industries that opposed the bottle bill now made some very significant mistakes, mostly in the form of hiring decisions. The lobbyists and political operatives they hired to represent their interests in Salem seemed to regard the Beaver State as a cultural backwater peopled with ignorant hicks and behaved accordingly. Quote, They did the most awful job, Senator Betty Roberts told Brent Wolf. It was like, here we are from back in the East, and here's little dinky Oregon. That was their attitude. You don't understand this bill. Trust us. Apparently working on the theory that these rubes were too ignorant to know better or too poor to be able to resist the temptation, several lobbyists actually offered to straight-up pay legislators for no votes. One called Roberts the night before the vote and promised, quote, plenty of money for Democratic candidates if the bill died. Roberts, shocked, simply hung up on him. That same night, Senator Ted Halleck got a phone call from a lobbyist who actually named a figure, $5,000 for each no vote. Halleck, doubtless both offended by the attempt and insulted by its diminutive size, cussed the caller out and slammed down the phone. After word of that got around, there could be no doubts about the outcome. Then the next day, Oregon became the first state in the country to require a deposit on beverage containers and to experience the halo effect of this little nudge on its citizens' attitude toward litter in general. As for Richard Chambers, he refused all requests for interviews or other forms of media attention. He just wanted to live in a less litter-strewn state, and he'd gotten what he wanted, so he was done. People urged him to campaign for bottle bills in other states. Chambers replied that he didn't care what other states did. He'd mind his own business, and they could mind theirs. Several years later, McCall heard he was dying of cancer and recognized him with the state's new Clean Up Pollution Award. 
He must have been pleased to receive it, but stoic to the end, all he would say on the subject was, I am in no way qualified to receive this award. He was almost certainly the only person alive to hold that opinion. Key sources in this story included works by, of course, Brent Wolf, as well as Mark Henkels. That's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 500 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Other Offbeat Oregon goodies include an active Facebook page, a Twitter feed, a ton of historic photos, and a bunch more stuff. Plus a book, including visuals for today's show and full citations to sources. All these things are accessible via our hub page at offbeatoregon.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license. For details, see offbeatoregon.com slash cc. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Facara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶